to the preaching and teaching ministry of Marion Oaks Assembly of God in Ocala, Florida. We invite you to open your Bible as we join Pastor Tim McIntyre for today's message for Bible study. Tonight we continue our series on answering tough questions with the question, what is the unpardonable sin? Um, what does the word unpardonable mean? Unforgivable. Yeah, they're interchangeable. So I just want to make that really clear in case anybody wasn't clear on that. Unpardonable, unforgivable. Before we talk about this whole idea of the unpardonable or unforgivable sin, let's just talk about forgiveness for a little bit to kind of put it into context. What are some things that might be relatively easy for us as humans to forgive? I know it's different for everybody. Different things really irk people or make it hard to forgive. But what are some things that it's not that difficult to forgive? What would you say? Dishonesty. Of course, it also depends on the level of it, which ramps up, makes it harder or more difficult. But dishonesty. What are some other things that we might find it easier to forgive than other things? If you step on my toe, okay, Amanda? Huh? Okay, when children misbehave. You know, sometimes it's a lot easier for that because we know there's a lot of other things behind it. You know? A lot of things, yeah. Okay, what are some things that would be extremely difficult to forgive? Lying. Lying? Some people have a real hard time with lying. Lying. Somebody else said dishonesty. That's the same thing. <laughs> so what's hard for one person may be easier for other. And again, it depends on the level, right? And what they're lying about. What are some other things that it would be extremely difficult to forgive? Stealing. What? Okay, there are lots of things. What would you say, Bert? Stealing. Stealing. What else? Not using their blinkers. Not using their blinkers. <laughs> <laughs> Anything that causes road rage, right? Cutting me off. So... All right. You know, but seriously, though, you know, if he had a loved one that was murdered, raped, uh, somebody abused, uh, lots of different ways. What were you going to say, Carlson? Okay, somebody tears apart your reputation. You know, there are certain things that we think of as much, much more difficult to forgive. And, and it's not the subject tonight about us forgiving other people. But um, some things are very difficult to think. What are some things that people think God might not forgive them for? Have you ever come across somebody that says, you know what, I've done, I just don't think God can or that God will forgive me. I'll give you a couple of examples. I knew a man, he's with the Lord now. Um, he was in a church that we pastored uh, almost 30 years ago. But anyway, um, it wasn't quite the unforgiveness thing, it's that, he had felt that he had never been filled with the Holy Spirit, and he knew why. It was because he had served in the military, and he had killed people in World War II. And he says, I, I just, and we tried to convince him. It's like, no, God loves you. You were fighting for our country, but even if you did something wrong, God can forgive you and still fill you with his spirit, work actively in your life. He was a believer, but he just really believed that he didn't have the fullness of everything God wanted for him, but that's the way it was supposed to be because of what he had done. And even more recently, not real recent, but I talked to another person who had served in the military and in that service had done things on behalf of the country and sanctioned, not things that were illegal or whatever, but because of that was really wondering whether God would truly forgive him or not. 
What are some other things that people might would think, I don't know if God can or will forgive me? Can you think of anything? Yeah, Janet. Infidelity. All right. Usually it's on the upper end of what we consider really serious. It's like, well, how could God ever forgive me? Sometimes it's because it's something that's so serious. Yeah, Vita, go ahead. Mm-hmm. So sometimes it may not be one thing, it may be the volume, you know, done so much that's wrong. I've lived such a terrible life. I've lived, done so many different things. And then sometimes people feel that way because they wrestle with a particular sin and they've committed that same sin so many times. It's like, well, God's got to be tired of forgiving me. He's not going to forgive me anymore because I've done it so many times. I've asked him to forgive me so many times and then I go right back out and I do it again. Janet. Being involved with satanic things, okay, with spiritual forces. There's a lot of different things that are there, okay, that people might feel that God might not forgive them. Forgiveness is absolutely necessary for any good relationship, whether we're talking about relationships between humans, but also our relationship with God. So we're going to talk about forgiveness tonight, especially in the context of the um, unpardonable or unforgivable sin I want to read to you, um, we're going to be reading the whole text in just a couple of moments, but where that comes from, uh, one of the places anyway is Matthew chapter 12, verses 31 to 32. Jesus says, therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. Um, very similar passages in Luke twelve ten and in Mark 3, verses 28 to 29. And in the decades that I've been involved in ministry, I have had a couple people come to me too. It's like, I'm afraid I've committed the unpardonable sin. You know, what is it? I, I'm just afraid that God can't forgive me. There's a lot of people that wonder what it is, but people also that wonder or worry that maybe they have committed it. So we're going to take a look at that tonight, and the best way to study anything is to look at it in context, all right? So I read to you the two verses that really focused in on that, but the context of that is in Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 to 37. So we're going to read through this and make a couple comments as we go along. You won't have any notes to take for just a little bit, and we'll jump into the topic here. But um, as we get into Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 22, it says, Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? So this is Jesus' life, Jesus' ministry. Here's this man who is blind and can't speak and is probably deaf also. And it's caused by a demonic spirit. Not every sickness or impaired uh, whatever uh, is caused by demonic spirits, but in this case it was. And Jesus delivered him of this demon. And the people are just amazed. They're like, I wonder if he's the Messiah. That's what they mean by saying, could this be the son of David? That was kind of a technical term of the Messiah because the Messiah is going to be a descendant of David. We get to verse 24. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. So the Pharisees make this false accusation. The Pharisees were some of the religious leaders. You had the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and um, the scribes, um, and the lawyers, the Bible scholars of the day. And they had rejected Jesus. They knew, or they 
believed with all their heart that he was not from God, that he was not the Messiah. And there was an ongoing conflict between them, and he, they hated that Jesus had such an influence over all the other people. Because until Jesus showed up, they were the ones that had influence over everybody. Okay? The thing is, they couldn't deny what Jesus had done. Something powerful had happened. And if they admitted that it was done by God, it would be like, well, we approve of Jesus, we're giving, you know, and they couldn't do that. And so they said, well, it wasn't by God, it was by Satan, basically is what they're saying. Okay? Let's go on with verse 25. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. Um, And if Satan cast out Satan... He's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? So Jesus just uses some logic. He says, what kind of sense does that make? Why would the devil destroy the work that he's been doing? Why would he cast out the spiritual forces that he put into the man? And, of course, this is a pretty famous statement. You know, Abraham Lincoln used it when he talked about the United States and the Civil War. And the tr- that truth is there. Whenever you don't have people, when you have people that are not united, okay, there's division. It causes destruction. And so Jesus said, whether you're talking about a kingdom or a city or even a household, if the people aren't in unity, it causes destruction. Uh, We see that in any relationship. You can see it in politics. You can see it all over the place. Verse 27, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. When he talks about the Pharisees' sons, he could be talking about their literal sons, or he could be talking about their disciples, because people's disciples were often called their sons. And basically, I like this, he's basically saying, well, if only Satan's power can cast out demons, then what about your followers that are casting out demons? You know, they must be using Satan's power too. Verse 28, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So he kind of brings this thing logically to a conclusion like it can't be Satan because Satan's not going to do this to himself. And besides, you've got your own people that are casting out demons. You wouldn't say they're doing it by Satan's power. But if this is really happening, the kingdom of God is present here. Okay, And so the conclusion is since Jesus doesn't cast out demons by Satan's power, he must do it by God's power, and therefore God's kingdom is here. Verse 29, he tells a mini parable. He says, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. The strong man in this kind of mini parable is Satan. He says, you don't go to somebody's house who is, you know, really strong, ready to defend himself, maybe has a great weapon, and you just waltz in and take what he's got. He's got to be defeated first. He's got to be bound. He's got to have his strength his way of defending himself and his stuff neutralized. And basically what he's saying is, I've done that to Satan. I've been robbing him. <laughs> you know, he's been robbing him of people that Satan had bound, that who needed healing, who all the people Jesus healed, delivered, and raised from the dead or forgave was robbing Satan. And it's only possible if Jesus was stronger than Satan. Verse 30, whoever's not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Just a very simple thought. Listen, there's only two sides to this issue. It's only two kingdoms. You're either with me or you're against me. You're with the kingdom of God or you're not. So he's, he's using a lot of different pictures, a lot of different sayings to make it very, very clear that either it's God 
or the devil, and you say, I'm the devil, but I've got all the proof on my side that I'm not. And if you oppose me, where does that put you? Okay? And uh, so then he gives them warning directly. Uh, the verses we read earlier, verses 31 and 32. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. And we're going to dig deeply into that starting in just a minute. But in context, you can see he's talking to these religious leaders who have been in opposition to, to him from the very beginning and who are saying that the things that he is doing by the power of God is being by, done by the power of Satan. Now, he says a few more things after that that still has to do with this concept. So let's read it real quick. Verse 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you'll be justified, and by your words you'll be condemned. And that kind of wraps that up. So he's saying, listen, you're saying this stuff about me? What you're saying about me reveals what's in your heart. Okay? And the fruit, the picture of the fruit. You know, you, an orange tree produces oranges. You know, apple tree produces apples. You know, and so when you have evil coming out of something, it shows that there's evil in their heart. The heart re, uh, representing their character and um, who they really are. And that comes out in words and actions. And he says, you're going to be judged by that. And part of the judgment is this whole thing of the unforgivable sin. So that's the context, okay? So um, let's jump into this whole thing about the unforgivable or unpardonable sin. So we're going to do that, first of all, by talking about forgiveness and how we get it, um, on what basis we are allowed to have it. So first of all, let's talk about receiving God's forgiveness. On what basis can we receive forgiveness? Confession? Okay. Um, so confession is actually the first thing on there, but before we get there, letter A, forgiveness involves confession. But why is confession adequate? Why does confession open the door for forgiveness? Because of the price that was paid. Okay, So you're right, but I wanted to get back to the root that if it wasn't for the fact that Jesus paid the price for our sins on the cross, we could confess all day long, you know, and um, it might show, you know, sorrow, grief, whatever it might be, but we still wouldn't be able to have forgiveness. But Jesus paid the price on the cross for our salvation. So letter A, forgiveness involves confession. First John 1 John 1.9 is one of my favorite verses because I've had to use it so many times in my life. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Okay? What does it mean to confess? What? To admit? To acknowledge? To tell the truth, right? On your note sheet, I have this. To own or admit as true. Okay? So if we confess, what is it that we are owning or admitting that is true? 
what you've done. You know, that I've done it, but not just that I've done it, because you can admit you did something, but feel good, pretty, pretty good about it. You have to confess and admit that you've done something and that it was wrong, right? Basically, to confess means to kind of to agree with. And so we're agreeing with God. God says this is a sin. I confess. I did it. It's a sin. God says it is. I agree with him. All right? It's wrong. Um, we admit that we've sinned and that the sin was a sin. Um, that saying that we try to teach our children and our grandchildren that we don't always enjoy saying ourselves is, I was wrong. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. <laughs> okay? Um, confession. So letter B, forgiveness also involves repentance. Repentance. Um, repentance was preached by John the Baptist. It was preached by Jesus. It was preached by Peter. On the day of Pentecost, when Peter was preaching and the people were convicted, they said, what do we need to do? And Peter said in Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. So what does it mean to repent? A change of direction. Okay, what other thoughts come to your mind when you think of repent? Change of what? Change of behavior. All right, yeah. You want to hear a joke about repentance? Anybody in the mood for a joke? It's one of my favorite jokes. So there was this pastor, and um, uh, they needed to repaint the church. And so they got the money together. They went out. I'm sorry, they got the money together, and right before they went to buy the paint, there was another big need in the church. And he says, well, I'll take a little bit of that money and use it for that. God will provide, blah, blah, blah. So he did. And then something else came up and used that. And so then he went to buy the paint. And so he bought the paint, got it back to the church, and realized this isn't going to be enough. So he thinned it down a little bit. Okay? And so the men got together. They painted the church. It looked so nice until it rained. And it just kind of drizzled, you know, and it came down there. And um, he felt really, really bad. And in the midst of the storm, there's a lightning bolt, and he heard a voice from heaven, and it says, repaint and thin no more. <laughs> so anyway, totally unrelated, other than that, I, I asked you, you all said you wanted to hear a joke about repentance, so. Okay, <clears throat> that just woke everybody up. So repentance is a change. On your note sheet, I have this, repentance is a change of mind that results in a change of actions, Okay. A change of mind that results in a change of action. This is something that's a little bit of a pet peeve of mine. Um, and that is that, you know, when I hear someone talking about uh, committing their lives to Christ, you know, and surrendering their lives to Christ, and all those things are wonderful terms. Um, but committing our lives to Christ is more than just say, hey, invite Jesus into your heart. To me, that kind of just comes across like, you know, you got a pretty good life, but it's not perfect yet, so just make Jesus part of it. And that's not what it's all about. It's like, okay, whatever kind of life we think we have, we got a problem. And we need Jesus to take care of it, and that requires repentance. So um, I think it's so important that the idea, whether the word is used, because some people may not understand what the word means, but that the idea is, is, is presented to people that we are sinners, and our life needs to change. We can't do it on our own, and we need Jesus, and so we got to repent, that kind of thing. Okay, So it means to turn from sin. Uh, Letter C, forgiveness includes, and this is a really strong theological term, pretty much everything. (laughs) Okay? 
forgiveness includes pretty much everything. You know, the verse we're looking at here, Matthew 12, 31, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blessing will forgiven people, but... But people just zoom past. Stop there a second. Look at what Jesus actually said. He says, every sin and blasphemy, but this unforgivable one. And we're going to talk about what that means, but we should stop right there and rejoice. Whatever we have done, as long as we haven't committed this unforgivable, unpardonable sin, it doesn't matter what it was. God can and will forgive it if we confess and if we repent. You know, we talked earlier about what are some things that it would be very, very hard to forgive other people for. And what are things that people think, well, God can't forgive me for that. God can forgive all of that. And we see examples in Scripture. What are some great examples in Scripture of people who committed terrible things and God forgave them? David. You know, he committed adultery with one of his best friend's wives and then had him killed to cover it up. All right? You think of any others? Peter, denying Jesus. Okay. Paul, yeah. Paul was involved in persecuting Christians, making sure that they were tried and leading to their deaths. God forgave them. Yes, Chris. No, he didn't. I think you're reading from the wrong Bible, Chris. So, okay. But here's, here's something that's interesting. So here's something that's interesting. Okay, look at, look at this here. It says, um, let me go back to it here. All right. Verse 32. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Who's the Son of Man? Jesus. Jesus says, even if you speak badly about me, you can be forgiven, but the Holy Spirit, there's a problem there. That's, that's, that's pretty interesting. Why would it be okay, not that it's okay, but why would it be perhaps easier for a person to be forgiven for speaking badly about Jesus than whatever this unforgivable, unpardonable sin is? Any thoughts about that? Yeah, that's true. That gets into what the unpardonable sin is. But as far as speaking badly of Jesus, yes, Lynn. I think the answer is only by mm-hmm. Yes, and that gets to what the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. We're going to jump into that in a minute. But the question I'm asking right now is, why did Jesus say it's not as serious to talk badly about him as it is to do what they did? B, did you have an answer for that? Huh? Okay. Mm-hmm. You guys are doing a great job asking what the problem is with blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. But my question is, <laughs> why did Jesus say that, hey, you can say bad things about me and that can be forgiven, but not the Holy Spirit? Candace. Okay. So maybe it has to do with the condition of the heart, not just what comes out of the mouth. Although Jesus did say what comes out of the mouth does indicate something about the heart, too. I'm not contradicting you there. So maybe a disconnect there. So what I'm looking for here is that, you know, sometimes, especially in this case, at this point in time, even the disciples aren't real sure exactly who Jesus is. Okay? Um, They think he's the Messiah. 
By this time, they're still not real sure probably whether he's really God or not. And sometimes people can honestly think badly, speak badly of Jesus because they don't really understand. I mean, we used an example before Paul. Paul was zealous for God, but not for Jesus because he honestly didn't think Jesus was from God. It took a revelation from Jesus to change his mind, okay? And so uh, what Jesus said here about, you know, you can speak words against the Son of Man and be forgiven, that was true over and over and over and over again about the Apostle Paul. Uh, I guarantee you he spoke a lot of bad stuff about Jesus, even though we don't have the exact words in persecuting his followers and all that, but he was forgiven, okay? But that also, but, but the, the point I wanted to make here is that that shows how serious this whole thing about the Holy Spirit really is. And all these answers you guys gave is really pointing right to that, okay? And we're going to jump into that now because we're going to talk about the work of the Holy Spirit, okay? So to understand what blaspheming the Holy Spirit is meant here, when Jesus says this, we have to understand the work of the Holy Spirit. All right, so let's talk a little bit about the work of the Holy Spirit in believers' lives. Okay, so um, that's just kind of going to be a background to what the Holy Spirit may do in unbelievers. But what does the Holy Spirit do in and through and for believers? And on your note sheet, you got these lines because there's so many answers. You can write down whatever you want that's true. But let's just brainstorm because there's a lot of it. What are some of the things that the Holy Spirit does in believers? He what? He prays with us. It says sometimes when we pray, we don't know how to pray. The Holy Spirit prays through us. Yeah. Yes. He convicts. Yeah. Even believers, he brings conviction. What else does he do? Janet. He comforts. In fact, one of his words is the comforter, right? The Holy Spirit is the comforter. He what? He guides us. Yeah. What else does he do, Janet? He what? He conveys truth from God's word. Yeah, and uh, I think he does it for us too, but Jesus promised his disciples specifically, the Holy Spirit will help you remember. You know, they learned a lot in three and a half years. He's going to help you remember. Okay, Chris. He empowers us. Yes, you know, Jesus said, wait for the Holy Spirit. He's going to empower you to be witnesses, so he helps us to be a witness. All right, And he powers us in the sense of uh, lets us be able to share, but also to live the life. He gives us the power we need to overcome the sin in our There's so many things the Holy Spirit does. All right, uh, I had just wrote down a couple of them. He comforts, encourages, empowers, teaches, guides, convicts, vicks, and a whole bunch more. That's why you got this big old line. Just put down your favorite ones, I guess. But as far as unbelievers, what is it that the Holy Spirit primarily does? He convicts of sin. He convicts of sin. All right? John 16, 8, Jesus said, And when he, the Holy Spirit, comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. The Holy Spirit uses every opportunity to convict people of their sins, to call them to righteousness, and to warn them about the judgment to come. So that's the foundation now for us to jump into this idea of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit for unbelievers, because these are obviously unbelievers that could get caught in this whole thing of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, because if they're never forgiven, then they're not going to heaven. If they are forgiven, then they're believers, so that, that doesn't apply. So this is unbelievers. So if his primary role is to convict all right, of sin and of what's right and of the judgment to come, now we look at this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to blaspheme? 
Well, that's what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. But what does the word itself mean, blaspheme? Because it's much broader than that. In fact, the word blaspheme can be used for people, too. You may not know that, but to slander. Yes, in fact, a lot of people don't know this, but the word blaspheme or blasphemy is used in the Bible. Um, and it, when you see it in the Bible, it pretty much, I, I didn't go through and tally it all up, but I think it's mainly used just to talk about God. But the exact same word can be used about people talking about other people, but it's always translated slander. It's the same sort of thing, okay? On your note sheet here, the word blaspheme all by itself means to speak against insult or curse, okay? So that can be used against people or God, but again, in the Bible, to try to differentiate and help people understand that, um, usually when it's translated blasphemy, it's when it's talking about God. Blasphemy is basically the noun version of that. Um, the best, one of the best definitions I came across was defiant irreverence or contempt. Okay? Talking about primarily God. So, to speak against, to insult, to curse, to be defiantly irreverent or contemptible, when we apply that to the Holy Spirit... What does that look like? Well, it's what they're doing here, okay? The Holy Spirit is actively involved, the power of God through the Holy Spirit, healing people, in this case, healing the man that was um, blind and mute and all that kind of stuff. And the Holy Spirit was involved in people's hearts and lives, okay? Convicting, saying, this is God, this is God. And it would be not just the people that would choose to follow Jesus, but the Holy Spirit was also speaking to these Pharisees. And what were they doing? What did you say? They were quenching the Holy Spirit. Yeah, they were. They were saying no to him. One of the. It's not complicated, but to me, one of the best definitions of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is saying no to the Holy Spirit. I've got that on your note sheet. Saying no to the Holy Spirit. Yeah, Vita. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a good question. What about the atheist who says there is no God, which is basically saying no to God? All right? The fool says in his heart there is no God. Yes, Chris? Yeah, you know, the Bible, you're right. Paul talks about people who try to look godly, but they deny the power of God. Um, that's talking about people that are in the church and stuff, but that would apply to the religious leaders, too. Yeah. Um, so saying no to the Holy Spirit, rejecting the conviction, the speaking of the Holy Spirit, um, uh, refusing to, I mean, in a, in a, a, totally apart from this specific instance with Jesus, I mean, this is what they're doing there is, you know, they're saying, okay, this work of the Holy Spirit, it's not the Holy Spirit. You know, it's not God. You know, the whole, it's quite obvious. Everybody else gets it. But the religious leaders are saying, no, it's not. So they're rejecting the conviction, the speaking, the, 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 the what's the word I'm looking for? The, the authority of the Holy Spirit to give foundation to this is God at work through Jesus. All right? Um, they had blasphemed the Spirit by attributing the power by which Christ did miracles to Satan instead of the Holy Spirit. So... Now, logically, if, see, see if, if, if this makes any sense, why would that be unforgivable when just about everything else would be forgivable? Any thoughts? Because God is trying to do 
Okay? So, if the Holy Spirit is, if I, if I understood you correctly, try to uh, kind of reword this a little bit. The Holy Spirit is the one through whom God works in people's hearts, and they reject that, then they can't have God working in their hearts. Yeah. So here's the thing. What do we say was required or the basis for receiving forgiveness? Confession and repentance. If the Pharisees and the religious leaders are totally and completely rejecting the Holy Spirit, are they going to confess or repent? No. So that's the simplest thing about it is they will never be forgiven because they will never ask for it. Yeah, that's the whole point. They will never be forgiven because they will never ask for it. So in a very real simple way, the idea of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit or the unforgivable sin, the unforgivable sin is the one that is not confessed and repented of because of the Spirit's conviction. That's why I say saying no to the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit is drawing someone to Christ and they say no, 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 and do that to the end of their life, they die. They don't go to heaven. Ultimately, they've blasphemed the Holy Spirit because they just said no to the Holy Spirit their entire life. Yes. You know, in Acts 7.51 is when Stephen, the very first recorded martyr, is on trial, and he's talking to the religious leaders. And uh, in seven, uh, chapter 7 of Acts, verse 51, it says, Stephen is talking to the religious leaders, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised and hardened ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Okay? So it's that ultimate resisting of the Holy Spirit. Now, please understand. Go ahead, Kingsley. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, actually both. Yeah. yeah. They are rejecting Jesus because the Spirit is trying to do the work in their heart. Yeah. But the thing we've got to realize, too, though, is probably most of us could give testimony, to that there were times that, whether before we were saved or even after, that we resisted the Holy Spirit to some degree. Yeah. Okay. So it's, it's not just that you had this one little episode where God convicted you, the Holy Spirit convicted you of something, you ignored him for five minutes or a day or whatever. Okay. But it's the ongoing. But these religious leaders were so adamant. Okay. That they were already there. It was a done deal. This is never going to happen. They are never going to be forgiven because they are never going to admit and recognize that Jesus truly is from God, which is what the Holy Spirit was demonstrating through his power and also in their hearts. And so, therefore, they would never be forgiven. And so, it was an unforgivable, unpardonable sin. So, how does that work out today? What we just talked about. If a person over and over continuously till the end of their life, says no to the Holy Spirit, they will not go to heaven. It's just basically the basic gospel. We need Jesus. We respond to the gospel, surrender our life to Christ by confessing and repenting of our sins because the Holy Spirit has convicted us and drawn us to the Father, and we respond, we're saved. But if we say no, we're not. We're not. Yeah, Lynn. That's right. That's a good point. You know, the Israelites are God's chosen people. They have a very special place in his heart and in his plan. But if they don't know Jesus as Messiah, you know, they will not be saved either. Uh, The Bible makes it very clear that God has not given up on them. Like, he doesn't give up on any of us. You know, Jesus would have loved to have seen the religious leaders turn around. 
Okay? And some of them actually did. You know, you get into the book of Acts, and it says some of the priests and some of the other religious leaders, you know, uh, did accept Jesus. All right? But for the most part, these ones had so totally rejected it that they were beyond hope. Yeah, Candace. I have a question. Um, I know I've mm-hmm. That's a very, very good question. You know, people who at one time had a relationship with God or looked that, like they had a relationship. We dealt with that a, a bit when we talked about, you know, once saved, always saved. Can a person lose their salvation? That kind of thing. Um, but the thing is, is that our relationship with God is based totally and completely on our acceptance of Jesus Christ as our Savior and what he did for our sins. And so, you know, it's all what's going on in that person's heart. And, I, you know, we can't read their hearts. Um, but for the most part, if we um, have asked Jesus to forgive us of our sins and we're trusting in him for salvation, it does manifest itself on the outside. The good thing is that God never gives up. All right? God never gives up. And we shouldn't give up either. Um, uh, it's a point I'm going to make a little bit later on, so I won't spend a lot of time on it right now, is that, you know, there may be people that you might notice, like, oh, they're beyond hope. You know, nobody's beyond hope till they die. You know, so we need to keep praying for them. So, mm-hmm. so Mark 3, 28 to 30, uh, to 20, yeah, to 3, verse 28 and 29. And you read it from the King James, I assume. Okay. Um, the English Standard Version says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. So the King James says, has in danger of. You have to look at the Greek to see the nuance that is there. But it goes back to what I just said, is that, you know, until we die, it's not over. You know? Um, technically, it would be possible for the religious leaders to turn to Jesus, but because of the stand they'd taken, is that it wasn't going to happen. And that's why Jesus was able to declare, because, of course, as God, he knows the end from the beginning, too. So, on your note sheet here, I put this as the last thing down there before the conclusion. The sin which will not be forgiven is the stubborn refusal to heed the Holy Spirit's conviction and ask for the forgiveness that Christ offers. Okay? Um, so to go back to your, your, your question, Candace, you know, God is always reaching out to us. And it's really a shame when people go through, it's kind of understandable, um, but when people go through terribly painful things and they blame it on God, although I've seen just the opposite too, people that go through terribly pa- painful things and it draws them closer to God, you know. And so we need to really pray for those people. Um, um, but, uh, you know, just the basic Bible truth, our salvation is dependent upon Jesus' death on a cross and our acceptance of that. So it really comes down to that person's heart once they go to meet with the Lord. So, yeah, Vita, you want to add something? Yes. Um, okay. That's a verse that goes back to what we discussed about once saved, always saved, can somebody lose their salvation? And there's a couple of different ways of looking at that, okay? So that, that we don't want to dig into that tonight because that's not the topic, all right? Yeah, it does and it doesn't. Okay. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't. Uh, and, and I can explain that, but then we'd be digging into that whole topic. Okay? Um, yeah. Because the thing is, is that we all know some people, and maybe we were some of those people that at one time had a relationship with God, and we walked away from it, and we came back. And we know we're on our way to heaven. So what does that do with that particular verse? Because there's a couple different ways of looking at that. Okay? So, but let's get back to what we're talking about tonight so we can wrap it up. Okay? When we talk about the question of people that are concerned... Have I committed the unpardonable sin? 
My standard answer, and I think it's very biblical, is that if you're concerned about it, you haven't done it. Because if you've committed, if you've gone so far that you totally deny God's work in your life and the Holy Spirit trying to convict you of sin and draw you to God, if you've gone so far to commit that sin, you won't care because you don't believe it. Okay? So if you have even a little bit of concern, you have not committed that sin. There's still hope for you, but you need to respond. You need to confess your sins. You need to repent and turn your life over to Christ. What? Mm-hmm. Could what be considered apostasy? Yeah. 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 Apostasy means to turn away from God. But, you know, again, it depends on which camp you fall into as to whether that's something that can actually happen to a Christian or it's just a sign of somebody that wasn't a Christian to begin with. And again, that's the other topic. <laughs> Go back and listen to that Bible study um, from back a couple of months ago. So to wrap this all up, Okay, under the conclusion, I've got some really practical things for us. Probably all of us in this room, it may not be true, but probably all of us in this room um, are believers. Okay? Uh, We know Jesus is our Savior. We've responded to the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, okay, to surrender our lives to Christ. What is it that we can learn from this whole idea? Because if that's true, we haven't committed the unpardonable sin. We're not likely to commit the unpardonable sin, but what can we learn from this? Well, number one, don't ignore the Holy Spirit, okay? That's the first step to committing that sin. And I'm not saying that if you ignore the Holy Spirit in your life, you're headed on a road to hell. I'm just saying that we're headed for trouble whenever we ignore the Holy Spirit, okay? But as I mentioned before, we can all testify to the fact that there's times that we have, okay? When you sense that you're resisting God and he's speaking to you, it should immediately be warning bells, not because we're afraid of losing our salvation, but it's like, God, I don't want to go that way, okay? Um, don't stop responding to the Spirit. And I would just say this in a very practical way. Is there anything in your life the Holy Spirit's been speaking to you about, and you've been ignoring that? I just really encourage you to pray about it. So, so don't ignore the Holy Spirit. The second one is this. Confess and repent of sin ASAP <laughs> as soon as possible, all right? The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin to keep us in right relationship with God. But we all know what it's like. We do something wrong, we don't want to admit it, and we let it go, and we feel terrible, and, and it's, it's, it has bad results and effects in our life and in our relationship. It's like, you know, when you know you've blown it, confess it, repent it. You know, so, uh, an accountant once put it this way, they say, keep short accounts with God. <laughs> you know, <laughs> keep things right with him um, as quick as you can. And then the last one is what I mentioned before. Don't stop praying for unsaved loved ones. You may feel like they're beyond hope, but you never know. I, I, I remember very distinctly um, uh, a church that we were on staff at, and a lady got up to give a testimony, and she said that she had almost stopped praying for her brother to be saved because he was so hard-hearted, had so aggressively rejected Jesus in anything that had to do with God. But she kept praying, and it took 10 years, and he finally surrendered his life to Christ. But in the flesh, she thought he was beyond hope. And that's the thing. Don't ever give up. Don't ever give up, because there's always still hope, as long as there's still life. Yeah. So... Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time that we've had to look at your word tonight. It's maybe stirred up just as many questions as we've answered. 
But God, we thank you for your Holy Spirit who's at work within our lives, Lord God. We thank you that your Holy Spirit convicted us of sin at some point and it led to us turning to you. Lord, you drew us to yourself by your Spirit. Thank you, Lord, that we've experienced that. God, we thank you that your Holy Spirit has come to dwell within us, to empower us and to guide us and lead us and help us with everything that we face. God, help us to be sensitive to your spirit. Help us to be led by your spirit. Help us not to ignore your spirit, Lord, to, to not say no in any, even just a little bit. But Lord, when we do, help us to very quickly say, Lord, I'm sorry. I said no, but I should just be saying yes. Lord, when we've sinned, help us to be quick to admit it and confess it and repent of it. Help us, Lord. And God, we think of those people who have turned from you, Lord God, or who turn away from you who do say no to your Holy Spirit, who resist your work in their lives, Lord God, we pray that you'd soften their hearts. Lord, each of us probably have people in mind for that. Lord, soften their hearts. They may seem so hard, but God, I thank you that you're at work. God, break through that hardness that they would call out to you. And God, I think of what Candace was mentioned about. Lord, we know people who uh, perhaps at one time had a relationship with you, seemed to have, whatever the definition is, Lord God, they claimed to have a relationship with you and they were walking with you and, 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 and it seemed to be doing fine. And then whatever it was that happened in their life, it caused them to turn away. God, draw them back to you. Draw them back to you. Father, we thank you for that. God, we just give you the glory and the honor in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed listening to today's message or Bible study. For more information, please contact us at area code 352-347-3001 or visit us online. If you are interested in supporting this ministry, go to our website and click on the online giving tab. Our website address is www.marionoaksag.org. 